Daniel chapter 1. This week I, uh, I read the story of a Roman Catholic priest from Croatia who, in 1943, fled from the Nazi secret police and escaped to Czechoslovakia. Um, Nazis were terrorizing everybody. They were fighting the Soviets um, in the East, and he saw the writing on the wall. And so he got out. And when he got to Czechoslovakia, he realized that the Christians who were there weren't reading the times correctly. They thought the biggest threat in the world was the Nazis, and of course, they were a terrible threat. But Father, let me get his name right, Kalakovich, knew that escaping the Nazis was one thing. But down the road, if the Soviets won, they were going to face an entirely different threat. They were going to face a totalitarian government that would refuse to allow faithful Christians to go on living the way they had lived before. And so Father Kalikovich, he started organizing Christians into small groups, you know, like we do, for Bible reading, for accountability, and for prayer, and began preparing them for life underground. And so when the Soviets did defeat the Nazis and Czechoslovakia became the communist puppet government of Slovakia, all these groups went underground and continued meeting. In the 60s, there was terrible crackdowns, and a lot of the leaders of these groups were thrown into prisons. But in the 80s, they sort of popped up again. And in 1988, they organized a mass demonstration in Bratislava, Slovakia, for religious liberty. One of the first major public demonstrations against the Soviet Union. And that eventually spread until, eventually, the Soviet Union collapsed. A lot of people look back on it and see these groups of Christians meeting, hiding away, as one of the main drivers of resistance against the communists. And so, as I'm preparing to preach through Daniel, I read this story. It's hard not to see some commonality. You know, uh, I, I know the example of the underground church in the Soviet Union and, and even in like modern day Iran or China. I read an article last month that a, a secular um, polling company out of the somewhere, I can't remember if it was Denmark or Sweden or somewhere, recently did a survey of Iranians in Iran and asked them to identify their religious affiliation. And 2% of the people surveyed identified themselves as Christian which is over a million Christians in Iran, in the underground church. And those people go through terrible things. I mean, things that are far removed from the comparatively comfortable situation we have. I mean, we're inconvenienced by our masks and social distancing. But hey, we're in church openly, freely gathering to worship God. I mean, and so, you know, we're not facing the same kind of persecution or threats that they are. But... Y'all know I've said this before, and I'll probably continue saying it, and maybe have to say it more and more, that God's people everywhere face pressure to compromise their faith. You know what I'm talking about? It's the kind of the remarks that people throw at you at work or school, kind of the scoffs, that internal turmoil that we all feel when we're about to bow our heads to pray in a public place and all of a sudden wonder if everybody's watching us. Maybe we'll just kind of keep our eyes open and pray in our hearts, you know. All those sorts of things we do to sort of adjust 
what might be faithfulness, you know, they're very real and present. And they, they may not be a Siberian gulag or a Chinese labor camp, but they're real. And so over the next several weeks, as we're looking at the life of Daniel, I want to draw your attention to his example. Because he lived through stuff that you and I could really never imagine. Daniel was a political prisoner taken from his family and homeland, probably around the age of 10 or 12. Was forcibly assimilated. We'll see it next week. They changed his name from Daniel to Belteshazzar. They indoctrinate him into the Babylonian arts of witchcraft, divination, and astrology. But as we think about Daniel, we don't think of him as a fully assimilated Jew. We think of him as a man who was faithful to what his fathers had taught him. A man who remained faithful despite the cost. And so this is the faithfulness, the sermon series is faithful in the fire. And this is the faithfulness I'm talking about, the faithfulness of Daniel, the faithfulness of Christians living under repressive governments around the world, the faithfulness that you and I probably need to start thinking hard about, making decisions about now, teaching our children about, if we're going to remain faithful in the little fires that are burning when we, you know, pray, bow our heads or whatever, and the big ones that may be to come. So that's kind of the introduction to this series, and I hope you're excited about it. I am. We're not going to get very far today. We're only going to get through the first two verses of the book, but I believe they're foundational for understanding everything that comes after it. And so if you've got your Bible open, look there with me at Daniel chapter 1. Are you there? If you're there, say, I'm there. I'm there. Okay, you're there then. All right, you've said it. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar. That's not Shiner. Shinar. <laughs> to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, these two verses seem like a straightforward introduction to the good stuff. The lion's dens and the fiery furnaces and statues of gold and silver. Um, and many of us are liable to just kind of read them and breeze through. Oh, yeah, 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 these are the standard narrative introduction, setting the people, King Jehoiakim of Judah, King of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the place, he came against Jerusalem, besieged it, took it to the land of Shinar. The time, the third year of Jehoiakim, which we're going to see in a minute, 605 B.C. We think, okay, he's setting the place. That's important, the background for all the good story that's going to come next. And we're used to jumping into Daniel for those six beautiful, almost like fairy tales, right? The fables, the morals that we see from Daniel's refusal to eat food and drink the wine from the king's table, instead to only eat vegetables. You know, we see those as the Sunday school lessons, and so we kind of disconnect them like pearls on a necklace. But what I want you to see is these two verses really bind everything that comes next in the entire book, because they root it to what God has been doing in history. You see, we have to wrap our minds 
around it. 2,500 years is a really long time in human history. And so, you know, plains of Shinar, Jerusalem, a place most of us have never seen and never will see. You know, we have to really work to understand what's happening. But Daniel's first readers knew it all. They understood this story. They knew, for example, that Jehoiakim was the 14th king of Judah, the last real independent monarch in Israel. They knew the significance of Nebuchadnezzar laying siege to the city of Jerusalem as a fulfillment of what God had promised them a long time before it would happen if they disobeyed. They knew what it meant that vessels from the temple would be taken and placed in the temple of Nebuchadnezzar's God. You see, these people were Israelites. They're descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They'd heard the story before, right, that when the earth was young and people were just beginning to spread over the face of the earth, a man named Abram lived in the ancient city of Ur in southern Iraq. And God came to him and said, Abram, leave your family's house and go to the place I'm going to show you. I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing. They'd heard the story of how Abraham did that. He left, and God brought him to this wonderful place, the land of Canaan. He said, Abraham, continue walking with me, and I'm going to give you all this land, and I'm going to give you offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven to fill it. I'm going to bless you and be with you. They knew how that promise, that covenant that God had made with Abraham, had been passed on to his son, Isaac, and to Isaac's son, Jacob, whom God renamed Israel. And they knew how they had enjoyed as a foretaste of God's full blessing, life in Canaan. But of course, the time of famine came, and Jacob and his 12 sons ended up in Egypt, where God had went before them and prepared a place for them, the wonderful land of Goshen. But then a couple hundred years later, what happens but that the same pharaohs who accepted them and provided a land for them turned against them and forced them as slaves to build monuments in his honor and his fame. So after you know, an attempted genocide, God's people cry out to him. They say, hey, don't you remember when you promised our forefather Abraham that you were going to give him a wonderful land, an offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you were going to, be, you were going to bless him and be with him? And God did remember. I love how Exodus puts it. It says God remembered them. And so he raised up for them a deliverer, Moses, who went before the Pharaoh you know the story. We looked at it last fall. He said, set my people go. Let my people go so they can worship me. Of course, we have the plagues and everything, but eventually God did set the people free. And Moses led them into the desert where God finally met with them, Mount Sinai, and he gave them his law, which was supposed to be this constitution, right? The way of life they're supposed to pursue as they lived with God and with each other. Of course, the first of the Ten Commandments is most important. Exodus 23, you shall have no other gods before me. And Moses later, 40 years later, after all the first generation of people who'd left in the Exodus had died, reiterated the law to their descendants, their children and grandchildren. And I like the way he puts the first commandment. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. See, what God was after from Israel was a single-minded, wholehearted devotion to Him. No other gods before me, and love me with everything you've got. But that was a commandment that was really 
too heavy for Israel. And over and over and over, they slumped down into this cycle of rebellion, idolatry. And God would allow their enemies to rise up against them and attack them, and they'd suffer. And like in Egypt, they'd cry out to him and say, God, don't forget about us. And he'd raise up for a, a deliverer for them, and they'd experience a brief interlude of peace and security with God. And then they would rebel against him again and turn to idols. Until eventually... God raised up for them a man after his own heart, David, who finally, once and for all, cleared Israel out of all her enemies. They were able to enjoy a golden age of life with the Lord. David was, of course, the first king of Judah. Jehoiakim was the 18th. So these two verses at the beginning of Daniel aren't just the wallpaper for the important stuff. The wonderful, colorful stories of a boy being courageous before a king. But they interpret the events of 605 B.C. and the 70 years that are going to follow in terms of what God has been doing with His people since the beginning. And first we see that a pervasive theme of God's interaction with His people is that God's people suffer attacks from their enemies. So that little story, that little Old Testament overview that you just got, has a recurring theme. God's people are always suffering. It seems like somebody's always taking advantage of Israel. And so in one sense, the fall of Jerusalem that we see here in verses 1 and 2 of Daniel chapter 1 are really just a replay and a redo of experiences they've had before. I mean, whether it was the Egyptians or the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Philistines or the Assyrians, God's people were always facing attacks from their enemies. But what sets these events apart is that Nebuchadnezzar, really on, in the history of the world, was unlike anything anybody had seen before. I mean, he, he is a military power of the highest magnitude. And his father, uh, Nabu-Palasser, had been uh, conquering the, the empires of the ancient Near East. And finally, Nebuchadnezzar starts to take over. He's the crown prince. He's his father's military commander. And in 605, he, he fights this battle of Carchemish. It's not really recorded for us in Scripture, but it's in the annals of Babylon, where Pharaoh Necho of Egypt and the Phoenicians uh, sort of stand up a rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar, and they say, hey, you're not coming here to beat us. And he comes there, and he beats them, and subdues Egypt and Phoenicia. He really has complete and total control of the ancient Near East. And on his way back to Babylon, he decides to stop by Jerusalem, where just three years previously, Pharaoh Necho had come into town and set up Jehoiakim as his puppet king, and he took tribute from Jehoiakim every year. So Nebuchadnezzar stopped in Jerusalem to tie up the loose ends of a rebellion that he was putting down. Something that he was worried if he didn't, you know, maybe Jehoiakim someday in the future would get courageous and would rebel. And so Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And so there's a way to look at all these events from just a merely historical and military perspective. I mean, it may be you know, as boring to you as watching the paint dry. All that, you're like, your eyes are glazed over and you're trying to like wake up again because, hey, maybe he's going to say something important. 
I mean, that's the truth. I mean, this is all history and military, and there's a way to explain it that way. People do, historians of both ancient and modern, that's right where they are. And we could look at it and we could say, hey, you know, small kingdoms get conquered by big kingdoms. Empires crush the weak. Strong leaders defeat weak ones. But Daniel doesn't have any of that in mind. He's not explaining it merely as history. He knows there's more to it than that. You know, whenever we think about these ancient Judeans suffering or Christians who suffer under communism or in China and Iran today, this is a recurring theme. God's people suffer attacks from His enemies. And we saw it last week as we wrapped up the book of Ephesians. That we're living on a battlefield where the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places are constantly trying to keep humanity distracted, focused on ourselves and on others, rather than on giving glory to God. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was part of this. I mean, he clearly implied that of all the things that Israel could believe, the kingdom of Judah could believe, was that God was on their side. I know he implies this. I don't, we didn't go into it much today. Maybe we'll get to next week. But those, that, that act of taking the temple vessels and putting them in the house of his God communicates the idea that Nebuchadnezzar believed that the gods were on his side and that in defeating Judah, he hadn't just defeated Jehoiakim, but he defeated Jehoiakim's God. You know, you go beyond that and you think about what Jesus himself experienced as the religious leaders looked at him and mocked him. He's hanging on the cross, and they say, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. See, this is the way God's people have always faced hardship. The powerful take advantage and they accuse God of abandoning His people or not being strong enough to save them. But this morning we look at the book of Daniel and we see that that's not the case at all. That God hasn't abandoned His people when we suffer. In fact, I mean, you think about the earliest Christians. They viewed suffering for the name of Jesus to be an honor because He'd prepared them to do it. He told them in uh, Matthew chapter 10, He said, You'll be hated by all for My name's sake. And He said, Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So we, we jump into the book of Daniel, and we just want to get to the good stuff. But the good stuff starts here. That God's people have always suffered. But the book of Daniel tells us that it's not because God's abandoned them. It's not because he's powerless. But God's people suffer attacks from his enemies. And God's purpose still prevails. So let's look at this again, and I'm going to show you the second part, that God's purpose still prevails. We're just going to read the whole thing over again. That way we all get practice saying these names. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels, vessels in the treasury of his God. See, verse 2 is important. Verse 1 gives you the background, right? You could say the historical and military account of what happened in 605 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem, lay siege to it, and that was that. But verse 2 shows us where God is in this whole mess. 
that, yeah, God's people suffer attacks from their enemies, but His purpose prevails. I mean, some people might want to explain it only in terms of military or history. But verse 2 gives us the theology. What's really going on in the book of Daniel? And it's right here in this phrase. The Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. And there are two indications that I want to point out to you that this is an important phrase. Maybe the most important phrase, I don't know, probably not in the whole book. But let's just say in these first two verses, this is key. Right? And the first indication that this is so important is the way Daniel describes God. He says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. And maybe you know that our English Bibles help us to know what's happening in the original languages. And so when we're reading the Old Testament, and the book of Daniel has two languages, Hebrew and Aramaic, and chapter 1's in Hebrew. And so when our Bibles use the word like God or Lord, they help us to know which Hebrew word they're talking about. Usually, the word God in the Old Testament is the translation of the word Elohim, which is kind of like a generic term for deity. And when we think about God, do you believe in God? We think about a powerful being, you know, that exemplifies what it means to be a deity. God. That's Elohim. Lord, you know, in all caps, little caps, is Yahweh, which is the, the name that God revealed to Moses on Sinai as his proper name, his covenant name that speaks to his glory and his personal presence with his people, Israel, Yahweh. But here in Daniel 1-2, we see the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. And you may notice it's not all caps. So this is a translation of the Hebrew word Adonai, which could be used in human terms. So if you had a, a ruler or a king and you said, my Lord, um, that word would be Adonai, and it speaks to their authority and power. And when it's applied to God, it speaks to Him as being the one who stands behind all things, ruling and reigning over it. So Judah wasn't the unfortunate victim of the ascendant Babylonian Empire and their emperor, Nebuchadnezzar II. Actually, the sovereign lord of history is standing behind the scenes, superintending Everything that happened. The Lord, Adonai, gave Jehoiakim into his hand. But the second indication that this is a key verse is the verb. Right? He gave Jehoiakim into his hand. And though Nebuchadnezzar had attacked Jerusalem, and you can imagine what Nebuchadnezzar's army must have been like, how many rows deep those Babylonian warriors must have been, what kind of siege machines they must have had, battering rams, giant ladders to lean up against the city's walls. Man, could you imagine being a dweller of Jerusalem and looking out and seeing Nebuchadnezzar's army? You'd heard reports of what he'd done to the nation surrounding you, and now here he is. What can you do? Nothing. You can't do anything. But Daniel tells us Nebuchadnezzar didn't claim victory that day because his army was as large as it was, or because he had the siege machines he had, or because he was more well-supplied than the people in Jerusalem were, but because the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hands. God stood behind the events that happened that day. It was his purpose that prevailed, not Nebuchadnezzar's. And so as a Bible reader, you come to that, maybe you're not a 
fan of the Old Testament or you haven't read it much, and you wonder, like, why would God let His people go through this? And if you turn to Jeremiah chapter 24, you get a clear explanation of it. And this is actually a key passage when we get to Daniel 9 next spring. Um, I'm not going to preach that long through Daniel. We're just going to take a break from Daniel. But when we get to Daniel 9 next spring, we're going to see, I think this passage here is in the background of Daniel's prayer that he prays to the Lord in Daniel chapter 9. And this is what Jeremiah had spoken to the people of God in Jeremiah 24.4, speaking on behalf of the Lord. Jeremiah says, You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all His servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them, or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. That's the crafting of idols. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, listen to this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants, and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Listen, God's enemies suffer, God's people suffer attack from his enemies. That's clear. That's a pattern. Of history. But God's purpose prevails. Nebuchadnezzar's victory over Jehoiakim wasn't just another instance of a powerful military leader conquering a weak one. God was in the action. God was fulfilling His purpose through him. That, that story I told you before of rebellion and idolatry and judgment was being redone here. That Israel had so turned their back on the Lord and given themselves to idolatry that He spewed them out of the land. He cast them away into exile. And so in fulfillment of this prophecy, in the words of Moses, who would spoken it a long time before, God acted to judge His people. And ironically, while God's enemies think they're really sticking it to Him, you know, they take the vessels from the temple and put them in the temple of their own God, God's purpose is being carried out through that. I think that's just a fascinating way that the Lord speaks about Nebuchadnezzar as my servant. That God is in control, even of the free actions of powerful leaders, to fulfill His purpose. Now, later, Daniel's going to stand in the presence of Nebuchadnezzar. And he's not 12 at this point. He's a little older. But he's going to say in Daniel chapter 2, To you, O king, the king of kings, the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. And into your hand he's given wherever they dwell the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar may have appeared to be the dominant king, but his authority and kingship were given to him by God, just as Jehoiakim, Judah, 
Egypt, all the other nations were given to him. And Daniel knew his days were numbered. Daniel promised that the same God who'd granted him his kingship would set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall that kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. This is real close. This is the key to Daniel's faithfulness. He didn't get caught up into what was happening outside the walls of Jerusalem. He didn't get caught up in the threats of death that Nebuchadnezzar spoke in Daniel chapter 2 over the wise men because they couldn't tell him his dream. He didn't get caught up in the momentary affliction because he knew his God. That no matter what his present circumstances said, God's purpose would prevail. And Daniel had built his whole life on that purpose. This morning, the, the principle of Daniel 1 that fuels everything else, the thing that you and I need to take to heart if we're going to be faithful in the fire, is this. Whatever our present circumstances may suggest, today, 2020, Luling, Texas, Central Baptist Church, God's purpose will prevail. So I'm looking forward to the next six weeks of this study because I think as we look at Daniel's life, you know, I'm going to try to avoid politics as much as possible. I'll let you make the connections. But the reality of it is, is that none of us know what the next five weeks hold, or the five, next five years. None of us have any clue. But Daniel shows us that if we root ourselves to God's purpose, what God is doing in the world, we'll never be ashamed. And the reason Daniel does this is because his life actually foreshadows another person, somebody who sort of embodied this faithfulness despite the circumstances, no matter the cost. And that person's Jesus. Right? In the way that Israel went through a cycle of rebellion and repentance, Jesus perfectly upheld the law of God from beginning to end. Never once said or did anything that violated the clear commands of God and perfectly obeyed everything that God had called him to. And still, he was hung on a cross and mocked. You know, and as a result, his disciples, in, you know, we talk about what it must have been like to be a dweller in Jerusalem. But can you imagine being one of Jesus' 12 friends or 11 faithful friends who had traveled with him for three years, witnessing nothing less than the embodied glory of God, to see the miracles that he had performed, and to believe with all your heart that the kingdom that God had promised in the book of Daniel to set up and establish forever and ever and ever, the kingdom that had been torn away from the 18th king of Judah, descendant of David, was about to be taken up again by another son of David, where he's going to rule and reign over not just Judah, but the whole earth in perfect justice and righteousness. And juxtapose that with him hanging on a cross, breathing his last, saying, it is finished. I mean, they lose their minds. They scatter, they hide in locked rooms, they go back home. They pick up their fishing nets once again. You know, they, they're totally lost. And it's because they thought that finally, for once, this pattern of God's people suffering under the attack of His enemies was about to get turned on its head, and God was going to fight back. There He was, laid in a tomb, dead as any human being had ever been. But then, crazily, Three days later, a rumor starts to spread that the master who'd been dead, laid in a tomb, is now alive. 
And then they see him with their own eyes. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Can you imagine how instructive that was? Peter, in the first sermon of Acts chapter 2, he, he puts it to the inhabitants of Jerusalem like this. He said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up, I love this phrase, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You know what this tells me? Is that there is no possible scenario, no potential circumstance or unforeseen trauma that can prevent God's purpose from prevailing. I mean, if Jesus could be laid dead in a tomb and be raised back to life again, God can literally do anything. And so it doesn't matter what our present circumstances may say. God's purpose was, will prevail. He's shown it and demonstrated it time and time and time again. And so if you want to be faithful in the fire, you've got to be able to say this. I can be faithful in the fire because I believe God's purpose will always prevail. You know, the opposite. I won't be faithful in the fire if I believe God's going to fail. It's a terrible way to live your life. It's a way a lot of people do, a lot of Christians do. You know, we experience worry because, hey, we know that, you know, I know the plans I have for you, plans for your good, says the Lord, not plans to harm you. And we know that, but somehow the stuff of life tends to crowd out what we know God intends to do in us, that God has abandoned us, that He has forgotten about us. But I can be faithful in the fire because I believe God's purpose will always prevail. An unforeseen diagnosis doesn't change the fact that He who began a good work in me is going to bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Rejection by my friends and family can't stop the growth that God intends to produce in me because, you know what, Jesus said to his disciples, nobody who's given up family or farms or anything for my sake won't receive back tenfold in this life and in the life to come. My family may turn their back on me, my friends may turn their back on me, but I'd rather be on God's side than on the side of a whole unbelieving world. It means a loss of a job or a livelihood isn't the end because I know that my God will supply all my needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This is the God we serve, a God who has a purpose for our lives and who will not be thwarted. Even in the hands of a sovereign God, these things that cause us so much worry and anxiety work together for our good. So do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that it doesn't matter what your present circumstances may hold, that God's purpose will prevail? You do? Amen. Me too. You know, I think as I, I think about these next six weeks, we're going to look at Daniel chapter 1 next week, and then 2, and then 3, and then 4, and then 5, and then 6. I hope that it encourages you the way it has encouraged me as I've prepared for this sermon series. Because I found myself at various points over the past six months wondering what on earth God thought He was doing in the world. Why would you shut down a church? Why would you shut down a country? Why would you allow these people 
to have control and authority over our lives. And I've had to come back time and time again. And if a little boy Daniel pulled out of his mom's grasping arms and taken away to a place where they had the sole intention of indoctrinating him and making him conform to their system, if he could somehow be faithful to God in his circumstances, then we can too. And I hope he'll help us do that. Will y'all pray with me?